Hi everybody. Hi there. We're here. There were a couple of weird technical things happening that we could see, but yes, I think everybody's actually with us. I so hope so. <laughs> I, I do, you know, because certainly I see everybody coming through on the comment page. Yes. I think it's just Facebook's counter that is operating oddly. Right. So, glad y'all are here today on this. It's not really fallish out, but but you can like see it from here. Well, it's like... 76 or something, Is it? right? Yeah. Ah, it's got to be, you know, in the 60s for me to start oh, okay. calling it fall. <laughs> those are those years I spent in Yankee land, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in Massachusetts and Ohio. That influenced me. I need to see leaves falling and the temperature out and a real chill in the air. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. what I'm looking for. I'm, I'm happy with this right now. This is would be great for me. I look earlier when I was looking to see if there's going to be rain. I looked at the extended forecast on WFAA, and there's like a five number in there. What does that mean? Uh, like a fifty degree number. Oh coming wow! And, and a low fifty degree number. Wow! And so I don't know if that'll materialize or not. But was there rain? There was some rain in the area. Of course, it didn't rain here. It never rains here. We're we're like this island of dryness and drought where everybody else is getting rain oh the storms are here oh just past north of us uh oh just past south south of us that's probably see because i ran the car through the car wash yesterday and was kind of praying it wouldn't rain for at least 24 hours yes because prayers <laughs> avail don't they honey <laughs> they do anyway well, i hope glad. everybody's really good today yes on this afternoon i you know i know that it's just we live in a time filled with um lots of lots of anxiety and so forth about what's going on in the world but we come here to take this time and spend it in god's word and try to read it a little deeper a little better for, with the goal of you know not becoming academic scholars or anything but trying to get so it really so we're really transformed and right. and You've, a story like Hester, so it touches our heart. Um, but hey, this is how Lauren started, and now she's an academic scholar. Yes, she so. was on the phone today for more than an hour with a professor from SMU who's doing a semester in Rome. And so he was in the Vatican at whatever Vatican University he is doing the sabbatical in, or whatever it is. And so he and Lauren were on the phone talking about, you know, her plans and patristics and all kinds of things, and she was so excited about it. She so it was, was great. Yes. It's, good to, it's nice to see somebody get really excited about even the things around this that a lot of people would call arcane, like the early church fathers, right? Irenaeus and Gregory of Nyssa and all these other things. They're really important because yeah. they all provided the the foundation and framework for the faith that we all embrace yep. right yes they, they worked with scripture for for centuries to understand its its implications and what it meant about jesus and about all all of us but you know for most most christians they don't have any interest in it but lauren does that's what she really does. gets her that's what really gets her engine going yes that yes. so you want you and want I to get her all yeah. that makes you so happy makes me very happy yes makes me very happy so today we're returning to the story of esther we are and mordecai mm. and haman dastardly dan haman right 
Yes. Does he have his little and, mustache uh, that he twists yeah, up? Yeah, that's it. That's it, exactly. And um, so, anyway, anything else you'd like to talk about? Wait, the Rangers. We have to talk, <gasps> you have to acknowledge the Rangers. Okay. So we watched uh, we watched the end of the game last night. We didn't we missed some of the beginning, but we turned we tuned tuned in, you know, in the closing several innings and boy oh boy that was some exciting final couple of innings there last night. It was night. crazy. It was crazy. When Garcia stepped up and hit that grand slam home run, man, man, it was great. After striking out four times in yes. the game, he hits a grand slam, puts the game on ice. So wow. you do realize tonight, both you realize? and Lauren, when we're going to our second and final meeting for right now about Israel yes. and discussing the places we'll be and all, you know some people are going to be checking on their phones for that That's first okay. hour. Yeah. Some of those people might even be moi. Yes, okay. <laughs> I'll me, fill me. you in. I'll when I'm, in when I'm not speaking, so because <laughs> I don't I don't really have a speaking but we'll, part. But we'll all be home in plenty of time for yes. the, yes, you know. Yes, because the game will go, go to 10 o'clock probably yeah. or close to it. All right, you better open okay, this up. Okay, I'll do that. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here on this Monday. Um, return to the story of Esther, and it is quite a story and lots of twists and turns. Um, more of them lie ahead, and we just um, ask that your Holy Spirit would help us to gain some insight into why this is in the Bible and what it what it might mean for us in even our world of 2023. Um, all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So I'm going to head over. As, as I work through Esther, which I, I've, I've done Esther before like this, I'm just, I just can't get over the fact that, if you're going to lower, lower it a little bit, yes. thank you. Can't get over the fact that it is, it's all about, Hatred of the Jews. That's Haman, right? He is a personification of hatred of the Jews and persecution of the Jews and so forth. And uh, for us to be in Esther right now is just striking. So let's let's review a little bit about where we are. We're going to start a little bit before um, chapter 6. Uh, we ended right at the end of chapter 5, but I like to kind of go back and bridge bridge our way in to get the get the context and the drama even. So, Haman is the king's right-hand dude, and Haman despises a man named Mordecai because Mordecai will not give Haman the respect that Haman feels like he is due. Mordecai has, uh, not really a daughter, but essentially a daughter whom he has raised and whom he loves, and who is now the queen of all of Persia because she won the big beauty contest. And when Haman concocts, because of his anger at Mordecai, talk about hatred, he gets the king to agree to send out a decree across the land that on a certain day in a certain month, about 10 years hence, all the Jews are to be slaughtered. All of the Jews are to be slaughtered. And... Mordecai comes to Esther through the window in the wall, I guess, and says to her, you have to do something. You have to do something. And she says, well, what can I do? You know, I, 
I risk my life if I approach the king without being summoned. What do, what, what do I do? And so Mordecai won't, won't, won't get off of it. And he basically, and he says quite clearly in the most famous verse in the book of Esther, I think, that perhaps you are there as queen um, for a time such as this. That God has worked all this behind the scenes because God is not mentioned. This is not a book filled with God. It's not a book filled with a lot of religious rituals and words and so forth. But it's, it's Mordecai is really acknowledging that perhaps God has moved behind the scenes to bring Esther to this place so that she can do something to save the Jews in, in Persia. And it always raises for me questions about how I see God working in my life. Um, I think there's two ways maybe we go wrong in this. One way is to never see God at work in our lives. Everything's just a matter of coincidence, luck, distribution curves, and all the rest of it. Um, the other way is to see that God is behind everything in your life. And I don't think that's it either. What we do know from Paul's letter to the Romans is that God um, works for good, right? For his people, right? Those are the purposes that God has, is even out of the bad, to bring good um, out of it for his people. So, but that doesn't necessarily translate to God determining everything that I'm going to do every day. And as I say, only half jokingly, you know, I take, I'll give God the credit for the good in my life and I'll take the blame for the bad and just sort of leave it at that. Um, sometimes it just, just sort of, I guess I see God working in my life so clearly that it's like getting hit upside the head. So this is, this is how did I end up with Patty? That had to be God if you know how the story goes. How is it we're in Esther right now? I, I mean, there's no reason necessarily I would have landed on Esther, but here we are. Well, I think in light of what has happened um, in Israel and their persecution um, by Hamas and Haran and Hezbollah trying to drive them into the sea, I, um, I, I sort of, I, perhaps God really did put in me the spark to, to choose the book of Esther. So I want to go to Esther. I want to go to Esther chapter 5. I have to find it myself because I tried it just a minute ago. I ended up at the wrong place. Okay. So go to Esther 5. Um, And go down to verse 9. We'll start there. Because you really got it. Got to get into Haman's rage um, to go on with this. Because as you recall, after, after, Morde after Mordecai implores Esther to, to save the Jews, she does seemingly come up with a plan. She, she goes into the king and he signals to her that it's okay to come in. And you kind of think she's going to say, will you please save you know, save all the Jews, save my people, but she doesn't. She says, I just want you and Haman to come to a lunch with me today. And this is after he says, I'll give you half my kingdom. But all she says is, no, just come to lunch. And so when they're at lunch and you think she's about to make the big ask, 
she just says, no, I, I don't want half your kingdom today. Just come to a larger banquet, you and Haman, that I want to, that I want to throw in, 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 in your honor. And so Haman is just feeling on top of the world, on top of the world. And verse 9 of chapter 5, Haman went out that day, happy, in high spirits. He was going to come back the next day for this big banquet for him and the king. Wow, he is at the top, top, top of the world, baby. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in Haman's presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and he went home. You know, he's got revenge on his heart, but indeed sometimes revenge is best served cold, right? So calling together his friends and Zeresh's wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him, and how they had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. And that's not all. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His hatred for Jew, which, for Mordecai, which is then spread across all the Jewish people of the land, is, is intense, just so intense that it's filling his heart with rage and the willingness to do the most terrible things. He's mad at Mordecai and he arranges for the slaughter of all of the Jews in the empire. You know, you might think, well, how could that be? How could that, how could hate run that deep and that strong? Well, I invite you to look back to October 7th. Um, I saw that uh, Israel played unedited footage for about a hundred journalists today in an attempt to help them understand the level of the atrocities committed by Hamas. Um, so, so Haman says, but all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. All right. So, his wife Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, this is what we were at the very end last week, we'll have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits, 75 feet, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled upon it. Hmm. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. With Mordecai impaled at the end of this pole, 75 feet up in the air. That is seven stories high. A story in a building is like 10 feet, right? Seven stories high. Can you imagine? 
you're not supposed to ask yourself, well, how'd they get the pole set up? What kind of pole could it be? How could it be that high? You're not supposed to ask yourself any of that stuff. I explained that when we started that. That's not, those aren't the right questions to bring to this. So he's going to have Mordecai impaled on this pole. Then he's going to go ahead and have lunch and be in good spirits and, you know, all that stuff. Well, this suggestion delighted Haman. And he had that pole set up. He's got the money. He's got the engineers. He's got the people. He's got this 70-foot-high pole set up. And friends, that is where we ended it last week. Um, well, chapter 6 now. little change of scene. Well, that night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. The book of Chronicles is like the big, long accounting book for the kingdom. Every little record of his reign, this decision, that decision, this person came to see. If you were going to pick something to be read to you in order to help you get back to sleep, this is an excellent choice. <laughs> excellent choice. Well... It was found, recorded there, that Mordecai had exposed Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. You remember that? That's way back at the beginning, that these two fellows were conspiring to kill the king, and Mordecai overheard them, and he informed the king of this, and these two were dealt with. So in that way, the king owes Mordecai his life. And it was written down in the book of the Chronicles and so forth and then put away on the shelf and time passes and that kind of thing's forgotten. And um, of course, the king doesn't know about any connection between Esther and Mordecai, right? The king doesn't even know Esther's Jewish. Um, but... He does know the name Mordecai because Haman had told him what, how disrespectful Mordecai was and what needed to be done about Mordecai and really all the Jews in the land. I think that's how it worked. So, the king said, Well, what honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? And the king's attendants said, nothing's been done for him. You ungrateful king, no. Nothing's been done for him. And the king said, all right, who's in, who's in the court? Who's around here today? Right, who's in the office is what that basically means. So now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. Because that's the next thing he's going to want from the king. Is I want the, you to, to, to order that Mordecai be impaled on this 75-foot high pole. Whew. Well, the attendants answered the king as to like who's in the office by saying, Haman is. He's standing right here in the court. We've, we've, we, could, we could grab him. And the king said, bring him in. When Haman entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Like, Haman, 
I got somebody I really want to honor. I want to lift up. Tell me what I should do for them. What should I do for them, Haman? Now Haman thought to himself, of course he did, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? He answers the question in his own mind, well, there's nobody the king would rather honor than me. Look what's going on in my life. I'm, I'm top, top, top. I came to the banquet yesterday. I'm back with the banquet today. Oh, man. It's me. It's me that he wants to honor. So he lays it on pretty thick. For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed upon its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is through the streets of the city of Susa. Remember, that's the capital city we're talking about here. This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. So can't you just, uh, uh, okay, my mind just went to the movie A Christmas Story. The reason is because in this story, little Ralphie has all of these daydreams, right? Him and his red rider, something, 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 BB gun. Yeah. Well, you can just see Heyman's now. His mind is spinning. Oh my gosh, I'm going to get honored. I'm going to wear a royal robe. I'm going to ride a royal horse. I'm going to have attendants proclaiming throughout the city that I am the one the king wants to honor. And you can just see it. It's all in his mind's eye. It's all. This is going to be like the best day of his life. Verse 10. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for... Mordecai the Jew. Mordecai the Jew. And Haman is a most is the most unsympathetic character that a person could conceive in the book of Esther. But in this moment, I can almost get close. Mordecai the Jew. Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. And that little daydream that, that Haman has had and seeing in his mind's eye, everything, the, all the honors to be accorded him, just all comes crashing down. And now all he can see is the horse, the robe, and that stinking Mordecai, whom he hates with a rage he hates Mordecai. And the king says, do not neglect anything you have recommended. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't really realize, I guess, the king doesn't. He kind of misses um, the, 
the hatred that Haman has for Mordecai. Or he's forgotten it, or, you know, time passes. He's a king. He's a busy kind of guy, I guess. Verse 11. Oh, my. So Haman got the robe, and he got the horse, and he robed Mordecai, and he led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. So what do we have here? An utter turn of events. It is not only that it's Mordecai in the place of Haman. Haman is the one who is going to have to go and get the robe and get the horse and get the royal crest to be put on the horse's head and then is going to lead Mordecai this Jew through the streets of the city proclaiming him to be the one that the king honors. What a turn of events. And during the festival of Purim when this play is performed, I mean this book is performed as a, as a play, sometimes by children, can you imagine the hooting and the hollering that's going on as Haman Dastardly Dan is leading the horse with Mordecai on the back of the horse. My, oh my, oh my. Verse 12. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. And he told Zeresh, his wife, and all of his friends everything that had happened to him. Woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. You know, there's a story about, I think it's Ahab and Jezebel, where Ahab is bemoaning the fact that he has lost part of his land, his garden, because it belongs to somebody else. And Jezebel says, get up and get out there and take care of this thing. You're king. And she ends up arranging for the guy to be murdered so that, you know, the king can, can you know, um, get his hands on the land. And so Zeresh, you imagine what she would feel like when when Haman comes home? Haman, who had, had this 75-foot pole erected, even better. Can you imagine she got word of what was happening on the streets of the city? And she goes out to sea, and she sees her husband having to escort Mordecai on the back of the horse. But anyway, so he goes home, verse 13, and told Zeresh's wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Well... His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Now, why does she say that? Why does she say that because Mordecai is a Jew, Haman, you're surely going to come to ruin? Is this one of those moments 
where God is unnamed but very present? Is it because, being of Jewish origin, she that Mordecai is, she knows that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is with Mordecai? And so it is, is it a testimony to the, to the power and the fidelity, the faithfulness of the God of the Israelites, the Jews? It's, it's a little bit like when, in the beginning of the book of Joshua, when the spies go into Jericho and they're befriended by Rahab the prostitute who is going to help them that the reason she helps him is because she has heard the stories about what God had done for the Israelites, leading them out of Egypt, swamping the Pharaoh and the army and all that stuff. And she believes that, that this God is, is a God on whose team she should be. Yeah, that's kind of how it is in the book of Joshua. Well, I... I I have to think it's the same thing here. Well, otherwise, what it is, it's not, like the, it's not like the Jews have a big army or something to come after Haman. But it's like he's trying to beat someone who is under God's protection, who is one of God's people. Remember, God's people describe the Israelites at this point. The Jews, those are who God's people are. Um, so she says, you're, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. And while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived. These are some of the king's attendants who have been castrated, so they're, they believe they would be more trustworthy arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Because that's still coming up in the afternoon. That's still happening. Nobody's called any banquet off. In fact, you know, Esther knows that Mordecai has been deeply honored that morning. Morning, I guess. We don't get enough time of day stuff here to be sure. But, wow. Okay, so any thoughts or reflections from anybody about that? I'll give you a moment while I suck down some coffee. And I do notice that on my um, desktop, uh -huh. quite often the screen has been going in and out. So I apologize in advance to anybody. If you're on and you lose us for a second, just come right back in and, um, and we'll be here. Yeah. Yeah. All my counters are in good shape right now. I don't know what happens at Facebook sometimes, but Mine there we too, go. But every little bit, my the screen tells me my video has ended. You have anything to add here, Patty? I really don't. In this story? I, I, okay. I really don't. But, um, the narrative is just rolling along, yes, and now yes. Haman is heading back for the banquet. At least he's got that. At least he's got the banquet. He's had to endure Mordecai in the morning. And, you know, his head is swimming, trying to come up with alternatives. But at least he's got the banquet. So... And of course, he has to realize this whole thing, this humiliation thing that he has is really the only people who really know that are his family and friends who he has told he's going to be so honored. He came up with all the honoring thing for Mordecai, thinking it was himself. Yes. So he only 
really has one person to blame, but I don't think he sees it that way. I don't think he sees it that way. It's all that Mordecai. All right. So, verse, chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking, drinking wine on the second day, that's ambiguous. Is it that same day? Is the same day? Is this the second day when the first day was a mini banquet or has a banquet going on 24 hours? I don't know. Couldn't find an answer. The king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? What is it you want? You came in to see me. You came in to see me, my love. Tell me, what is it you want? I'll give you half my kingdom. All right? It will be given to you. Anything you want. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Just tell me. You're making me nervous. <laughs> Just tell me. Well, Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. Now you can you can imagine that the king at that is rocked back on his heels or whatever if he's sitting down on his you know what grant me my life. He certainly has no sense that his queen's life is threatened in any way. Grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Because remember that Haman said, Ah, king, do this. Give out the order to kill all these Jews and I'll give you 10,000 talents. And we figured out that that was like $270 million. And the king might have said, Well, just keep your money. But still... I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would destroy disturbing the king. Okay, so that seems like an odd thing until we remember that slavery in the was common in the ancient world across the globe across the globe and it would go on in various forms for a very very long time um, century upon century and the nature of it would vary from place to place but the truth of it was that these economies were were slave economies. They were economies that used a large number of slaves to accomplish a large number of purposes. It was endemic in the Roman Empire. It was. That was the case. Many, many, in the Roman Empire, millions of slaves. That's why there were slave rebellions um, like the movie Spartacus and and like depicted in the movie Spartacus. But and it's but it wasn't just the ancient mid near eastern world, it extended around the globe. You know, into India and China and elsewhere. It was 
it was the way of things. So, for I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Well, verse 5, King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? I don't know what the deal is with the king, really. You read it, I mean, he's an interesting character in this, but he, he isn't painted in the best light. It's like he's the got dementia or something. You know, he can't remember one thing to another. I mean, he sent out, he was asked by Mordecai, I mean, not by Mordecai, Scott, by Haman, and he said yes, and he told Haman to keep the money, and it wasn't that long ago. It was like, if we look at the dates in here around this month of Adar, it was in the last month or two. But he doesn't remember. I don't know that it's because he's so busy or because he's not busy enough or what the heck, or this is just how the narrative needs to work. Maybe it's they're just so inconsequential to him. Yeah, could be. So Esther says, an adversary and an enemy right? An adversary and enemy is the one who has done this thing. And his name is Haman, this vile, that's a strong word, isn't it? This vile Haman. This vile Haman. Named right there before the king. From whose lips? The the, the queen who the king is so devoted to he's willing to give her half his kingdom and on her out of her lips comes this vile Haman he is the one then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen right the banquet has turned to death for him the day that began so well when he thinks he's going to be honored on this horse and led around town and then go to this banquet. The, the honoring on the horse stuff turns terribly against him. And now at the banquet, the queen has reminded the king about what Haman asked him to do. Now, what does this also mean for Esther? She's revealing that she's a Jew. She's revealing that, that she's one of these Jews. Exactly. Well, the king got up in a rage. He left his wine, of all things, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. So now you really need to picture all this in your mind's eye. So the king has gone out into the garden, leaving Haman and Esther, where Haman is going to beg for his life from Esther, because he figures, I know what the king's going to do to me. I'll persuade the, the queen to intercede on my behalf. Just as the king was returning, just as the king was stepping back into the room, Haman was falling on the couch 
where Esther was reclining. I don't know if he's falling in a faint. I don't know if he's falling trying to get to his knees clumsily to, to beg her. But the king walks in and what does he see? His beautiful, beloved queen relying on the couch and there is Haman, the vile Haman, throwing himself on the couch, throwing himself at, at the queen, as it were. And the king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in this house? Ah. Oh. As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, Hmm, a pole reaching to a high of fifty cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. And the king said, Impale him on it. Impale Haman on the pole that he erected to impale Mordecai. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Wow. What a turn of events in just a few hours. You know, I mean, I don't, it doesn't really tell us what the king had decided would be Haman's fate. Haman assumed it was going to be like off with his head, which would be a lot better than impaling on that pole. But when the king saw Haman seemingly molesting the queen, that threw him over the edge. It's almost like that was worse than what Haman, the other stuff Haman had done, while <laughs> getting him to send out this edict to kill all the Jews. But Haman is, as the old saying goes, hoisted with his own petard. And so when that old saying occurred to me today, I decided to do a little bit of homework about hoisting with his own petard. So it comes, it's a saying you hear a decent amount of times in our world, um, sometimes hoisted by his own petard, sometimes hoisted with his own petard, but those are really the only two correct ways not hoisted on his own petard. A petard was a, um, it's an English word from the French and then from the Latin for a small bomb, for a small bomb. And just interesting little piece of this, that the word is derived from the Latin word to fart. Wow. Yeah, because it's just a small explosion. Oh my God! Yes, that's the idea. That's that's why the this little bomb is is called this. It and the 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 talking the hoisting with his own petard is the idea that the bomb maker is killed by the bomb that he's making. So right, which yes. happens. Well, yes, so that's why it's hoisted to be lifted. Hoist means, of course, to lift up. the The bomb maker is lifted up. With it into the air like dead, hoisted up with his own bomb. That's the whole thing. It comes from Hamlet. It's a Shakespearean phrase, hoisted with his own petard. And sometimes now we put hoisted by his own petard, but it means the same thing, right? It means 
right? The, in this case, Haman is impaled on the pole that he meant for Mordecai. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting, Patty? I think it is. I think it is, too. So, that's it. Hoisted by his own petard, hoisted with his own petard. Think of the bomb maker. The bomb maker and the bomb is the best, and that is actually what the word comes from, but that's a really good illustration of what the phrase means. That's like a little text box for this afternoon. Would that be the same if, like, I don't know, in our, in our times that you were... Um... You know, somebody had a gun to protect themselves. The gun was taken away from them by the bad guy, and they were shot with their own gun. Would that would kind that of similar? Some? Yep, yep, yep. It would be. Um, but I think usually the way it's yeah, I'll just say yes to that. Okay. Okay. So. All right. So, anybody have anything before we? Before we go on into chapter 8. We are just plowing through Esther. Yeah, you know, because it's just, it's a, it's a story. Yeah. And there's not a lot of deep theology. There are these moments in it, such as, you know, perhaps, you know, you're in your disposition, Esther, um, you know, just for this time. Or the the, the wife saying, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to beat uh, Mordecai, right? To me, implying that it's about he's under the protection of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But anyway, so I don't see anything coming across the wire for me. Nope. Chapter 8, verse 1. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman. Remember, he's wealthy, wealthy, wealthy. He was able to promise the king, in today's dollars, $270 million to do what he wanted the king to do. So it's a, quite an estate that he has. And so Xerxes gives Queen Esther Haman's estate. Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So that's now another piece of the puzzle that's come together that Esther is not only Jewish but that she is the cousin of and has been brought up by Mordecai. Yep. And the king took off his signet ring right which he had reclaimed from Haman and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. So now Mordecai is essentially moved into the position of the king's right-hand guy. He's got the signet ring with the king's seal on it. And he's, gonna, he's going to uh, manage Haman's estate. But what is still out there? What has not been dealt with? It's like Jeopardy. The doo, doo, plan doo, to uh, annihilate the Jews. The edict. Yes. That all the Jews are to be annihilated and killed on in the twelfth month of Adar on the tenth day or whatever it exactly is. Yep. Oh, Scott. 
One second. Ah, I tried to get rid of something that was interrupting me, and I interrupted myself. <laughs> All right. So verse 3, Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. Now, in our day, there are some who have a little bit of trouble with that verse because they say, oh, come on. Here we go with the woman who's falling at the king's feet and she's weeping. But she, what, she, has, she has nothing else. She has to basically manipulate the king into doing what she wants done. And if it means that she's going to manipulate him by falling at his feet and weeping and pulling at his heartstrings and all the rest of it, well, so be it. If that's what it takes, that's what she's willing to do in order to what? Save the Jews from annihilation. It's not hard to see, given the history of the Jews, why this story is so attractive. Right? It, it, it's... It's a story from the heart of a people who are always on the verge of annihilation. I was reading something the other day about October 7th, and, and it was one, a Jewish woman, a writer, who said, people call this, you know, our, uh, our Holocaust here in 2023. And she said, well, but it's not really that, because this time we can defend ourselves. I, I was going like, wow, you're right. Um, this time we can defend ourselves. So Esther, she's got a, she knows what she wants to accomplish. So she pleads with the king. She falls at his feet. She weeps and she begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther. Remember that gold scepter business? You know, she's already pleading with him, so I'm not sure what the gold scepter is, but I think it signifies that something important is about to happen. So he, he raises up the gold scepter to Esther, and she rose, and she stood before him, and she says, Now, if it pleases the king, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it is the right thing to do, that's a good addition, isn't it? And if he thinks it is the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagate, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces, all 27 provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? So Esther, mighty Esther, she is working each piece of this for the salvation of her people. Verse 7. King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, 
I have given his estate to Wester, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring. Wow. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with this ring can be revoked. Okay, now that's a significant line because it introduces you to a problem. What's the problem? There's no getting out of this for the king. The edict that went out before yes. was sealed with the king, signed with the king's name, sealed with the signet, mm -hmm. and now the king is saying it can't be revoked. So what do they do? You know, I, you come across this kind of thing once in a while in the Bible or elsewhere where the idea is that what the king says can't be undone. No matter how stupid it is or no matter how much the king himself or the queen herself wants to if it's a queen who is the ultimate authority. But, you know, I don't know how much that was actually true in practice because it just seems, it just seems so stupid. Where would such a custom, a, pers a perspective arise that a king, who, and these kings held, in this world, I mean, they held ultimate authority. They, they you could live or you could die because of, they didn't like your look, or they liked your look, or whatever it might be. Um, so how would how would the custom arise that an edict like that couldn't be revoked even by the king himself? That's my question. I don't know. I, I suspect it's just a plot device in the story to, to move things forward and create this this next piece of tension because if, if if it was as simple as the king sending out a letter saying you know like never mind <laughs> right mm -hmm. that would be the story be over at that point but it isn't there are twists and turns and complications ahead and they derive in part at least from this no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. So, just like when the earlier edict went out, this these next verses completely completely parallel that. If we went back and found where the earlier edict went out, just like this. The royal secretaries are summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan, as opposed to the first month, which is, I think, where all this started, the month of Nisan, they wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127, not 27, Scott, 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and in the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers 
who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. This is kind of like in the movies, you know? They're going to take the fast. They had gotten the most beautiful woman in the kingdom, Esther, and now they've taken the fastest horses, and the riders are going out carrying this edict. Ride, 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 fast, 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 out to the provinces. And it's a long way. Let me pull up the map again. Okay, one more over. Here's the expanse of the Persian Empire. It would take a long time, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles, to get from Susa to Tarsus or Haran or Jerusalem. Cush is over there, Egypt, getting all the way to Egypt. Wow, big job. And those riders are gone, and they're riding on fast, fast horses. Fast, fast horses. Okay. So, the king's edict, edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and to protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. Wow. Okay, so what do we have? We have two edicts side by side from the king. The first one is the edict giving, instructing the provinces that they are to rise up in arms and kill and annihilate every Jew and seize their property. And now a second edict goes out saying that the Jews have the right to arm themselves and to defend themselves. And indeed, when attacked, they can take the plunder from their attackers. So these two edicts create what? What do they create? They create open war. Yeah. They're blessing, the king is blessing both sides. <laughs> He's already blessed one side. Giving them, giving them permission to attack. And then we, on the, on the side of the Jews, the king is now blessed there defending themselves and all the rest of it. So, and these are basically equivalent edicts in that way, except one is to the attackers and one is to the defenders. Yet they're both operable. They're both in place. Oof. The day appointed, verse 12, the day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the same day the attack's supposed to happen. So it's all in parallel, right? Side by side. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. Verse 14. The couriers, riding the royal horses, went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. 
Okay, so then what's going to need to happen? Time's just going to need to pass because both edicts are written in such a way as to become, what word, operational at the same time. The question really is, well, just because there's an edict that you are to go out and annihilate Jews, do you really have to do that? You really have to just because the, there's a law that says you should? I mean, that's that's been a question for people as long as there have been laws. Um, if we go back to Nazi Germany, um, as they were piling more and more laws in place against the Jews, did the Germans have to go along with that? Or were they just used to obeying the laws and they're obeying the laws, saying, well, I'm just obeying the law here. Um, uh, give them an out to do what they would do without the law. But obeying the law is, is, is not an excuse for an immoral act. Right? There are immoral laws that need to be opposed. This is Martin Luther King, right? Um, just because there's a law in place, that doesn't make it just. There are unjust laws that need to be opposed and which are an affront to, to morality. And so the people in the provinces who heard who knew about the edict to attack would also have heard about the edict to defend and could have simply not attacked. Maybe even being smart enough to recognize that this is some kind of weird thing and they're just going to sit it out. I don't, I don't, I don't know. But sadly, what does the nature of humanity say to me? that there will always be some who are ready to attack. And there will always be some who are ready to attack the Jews. I, ne I can say I had no idea that anti-Semitism ran so deeply in portions of the United States of America. You know, I know that it's... A, I knew it was around, but... But, like, wow, in the last two weeks. Just people who won't, they can't even bring themselves to admit that Jewish babies were slaughtered and their heads cut off and the ch children taken as hostage if they weren't killed and maimed and tortured. And they, they just, how, how could that be? How could it be? I, I just really had, I just, you know, I'll just, I had no idea that anti-Semitism ran that deeply. And the sad part is, so much of it seems to emanate from universities, from what I can see. And it's, it's, it's a terrible and, and sad thing. And we all said, not, I mean, I wasn't born yet, but we said as a society after World War II and the Holocaust, never again. Well, yep. it's again. 
So what do we say now? Do we just stand back and say, well, never again, or what? And so, anyway, I won't get on too big a soapbox, but I, I'm, I, I remain stunned, honestly, that there, by so much of what I see in the way of those who are clearly anti-Semitic and, and pro-Hamas. So, all right. One, one little paragraph left, and then we're going to end it today. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen, and the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating, and many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Now, in the many of you know what the Septuagint is. The Septuagint is the Greek translation done... 150 years before Jesus of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Hebrew scrolls, including Esther. So there's a there's a Hebrew version of, of Esther, and then there was a Greek translation of, of Esther done in the 250, 200 years before Jesus. So in that, what the Septuagint translators rendered this as, they didn't put became Jews, they put the many people of other nationalities were 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 circumcised. Because fear of the Jews had seized them. Because here's Mordecai, all of a sudden he's on top of the whole world. And when we come back next week, we're going to see that though there's great celebrating amongst the Jews because of this, what has happened and the second edict has gone out, this story is not over. It is not over. The day is going to come when the first edict, the edict to annihilate the Jews, is going to take effect. And we will see what happens with that. So. Anybody got anything? Patty got anything? Well, that's okay. It's you know again, it's a virtual, virtual way we we're, we do do the Mondays. But hey, it works all right. Yes, it it was. Right. It was good. There's only two chapters left. Really? Yes. So. Uh, nine and ten. Nine and ten. You're gonna have to put your thinking cap on. I know you've already said what you were thinking of after this. Did I? What was? What did I say? I thought it was a New Testament book, but I'm not sure which Acts. Well, we, we, we're doing Acts on Tuesday. Okay. So we might we might go to the New Testament okay. after we leave Esther here. Then we'll have. Then to I got you know I got an email from a lady in the last week or so saying how much she was enjoying the Old Testament, and mm -hmm. when are we going to get? Yes. You know, going to get back to the Old Testament. So yeah, interesting, the things that people really, yeah. really get excited about. So all right. Um, very good. Yeah. Well, maybe we maybe we would do one more than Old Testament because the X X is a pretty long 
Yeah, it'll take a long time take to go through wax on that, Tuesday. And you could do maybe something else, Old Testament. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll look. Maybe we'll do a do a, a short book of the prophets or something. We did. We are brave enough to do. I did Isaiah on Monday, right? Yes. Yes, that was that was a brave leap. Yes. It <laughs> so was. maybe we'll take it another was. leap or something. Anyway, I'll think about it. <laughs> but we're not there yet. We're not through with Esther yet. No, we're not. We're okay. not. Okay. We're not. Thank you guys all for joining us today. Um, I'm glad to see a couple people wrote they weren't having any problems, but my computer was. So <laughs> anyway, um, just hoping everybody has a wonderful day. Go Rangers tonight. Yeah, go yes. Rangers. I was I was croaking last night. I was at the for a woman who doesn't follow baseball <laughs> at all, doesn't follow the Rangers at all. You put on a game that matters for her, like the Rangers. She can become a rabid Rangers fan. Yes, yes. Well, Scott told me one time, <laughs> this is just his little bits of wisdom, and, and they usually are right. You know, baseball can be, like, so slow and so boring at times, especially when the games don't matter. But when the games matter, every pitch matters. And that's how it was last night, every pitch. Every pitch, could be, every pitch could be out of the park. So... Anyway, you got it. and for those of you who come tonight, uh, we'll see you down in Pirro Hall for, for the, part two uh, next of Israel the meeting. next Israel meeting. Yeah. And um, we'll, we'll still see what happens with the whole Israel trip. Everything is just, at this moment, just status quo. We'll just, just status quo. Just Nobody's wait. asking for money. So. That's the big thing. That's so. the big thing. Anyway, let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this afternoon. We thank you, God, for this... Um, very, very different book of Esther. And as Scott has mentioned in the past, Lord, it's a, it's a book where your name is never even mentioned. But Lord, we can see that you were at work all along in this book. Um, we thank you, God, for this day. We thank you, God, for the cooler weather. And we pray, God, that you would continue to watch over each of us, Lord. We pray for your wisdom and your discernment, God, in every part of our lives. We pray that you would watch over us and keep us, our families, our friends healthy, Lord. And we pray that you would just bring us back together again next week to, again, uh, you know, get a little over an hour to just study your word and kind of forget about what's happening outside. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Adios, everybody. Bye, everybody. See ya. Maybe tomorrow.